0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Revived
1: Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
2: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
1: Luther explained the true and important doctrine of repentance, which was hidden in the profoundest darkness. He showed us what it was and where refuge and consolation could be
3: found. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're listening to a sermon by Philip Melanchthon. It was preached in 1546 at the funeral of Martin Luther.
2: Joel, this is a really cool episode. Uh, we have done a funeral sermon way back in the past, uh, but it not not. We've only done a couple, but they really are usually really good sermons. And this one, the last one we did, was by actually some famous people as well. John Wesley was giving the funeral sermon for George Whitfield. That one was really cool. But I'm really excited about this one, where Philip Melanchthon is giving the funeral sermon of Martin Luther, hmm. or the eulogy. It's kind of incredible that we even have something like this. And it just, you you think about it and you're like, man, this is probably going to be pretty important. Now, before we go into the the, the backstory as we do, I did want to give a special shout out. The person who read this sermon for us is Clay Craby, and he runs the Reasonable Theology podcast. Their show was the very first show to ever do an interview with us like three and a half years ago. They're wonderful, a very good podcast that talks about theology. They also talk about Uh, church history and a bunch of other stuff. He has a great voice. So I do highly go recommend you go check them out, maybe subscribe to them and listen to a few episodes. And if you're looking for one, uh, I just recently did an interview with them on church history. So you can go check that episode out for sure and enjoy it. But we definitely want to give him a shout out. And we also have something else we wanted to shout out.
3: iTunes review. Yes, that's right. We have another written iTunes review. This one comes from Saved by Grace Through Faith. Is the screen name that pops up here. They say, great resource, truly blessed to have this as a resource. I am so grateful for this podcast that keeps the memory of godly Christians who have served the church throughout the ages. As a young adult, it truly allows me to appreciate the sacrificial saints who have gone before me and remind me that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. What a what what an encouraging review! Thank you so much for uh, leaving that five star review on iTunes. It really does help the show. We love reading them. We love shouting them out, uh, especially here on this episode about Philip Melanchthon. Now, Troy, when I think of Melanchthon, I think of I think of like Martin Luther's right hand man, right? Yeah. His, his when I when I'm crime. not
2: thinking to myself, that name is kind of weird, Melanchthon. <laughs> my I second like thought I, I is, it. yeah, it's a cool name, but my second thought is that's who he is he's the right hand guy
3: yeah yeah much in the way that i think that uh you know i hope you see me as your right hand like uh maybe you would invite me to preach at your funeral i feel like you know maybe we could go down in history that way right joel that would be awesome there we go i mean not my dying part (laughs) say what oh yeah yeah (laughs) You know the scenario in which you're still alive, yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, and you know, what? I'll I'll return the favor. I would love to have you speak at my. You can give me. A, you would give a a great eulogy for me. I definitely feel like it.
2: I I definitely think I would kill it, man. I I'm, I'm almost looking forward to it. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs>
3: except me dying part, right?
2: Yeah, except for that part.
3: <laughs> Philip Melanchthon, born in the year 1497 in a part uh, that area would have been called the Holy Roman Empire at that time, and at the age of 10. He was sent to school to learn the languages, to learn Latin, to learn Greek, to learn Greek philosophy. Uh, And this was funded by his great uncle, who was a a famous Renaissance humanist, ended up being a a pretty big deal in his own right. Uh, And it was his uncle that was his ticket to education and ticket to um, a lot of the, the opportunities that would open up through his life. And his uncle was someone that was really fascinated with Hebrew history. Uh, I mean, imagine imagine being alive in the late 1400s uh, and speaking with these Jewish historians, speaking with these Jewish rabbis, and learning their viewpoints on the Bible and, and how they could explain the Old Testament in ways that you didn't understand. Like That, that was something that was really fascinating uh, to the world at that time. I, I, I would argue still is fascinating. It was his great uncle that uh, encouraged him to change his last name to Melanchthon, which is the Greek equivalent of what his German name was. And apparently this was a trend at the time. You know, it was, it was the thing to do. It was the fad to change your name to uh, the Greek version of the name. That's, that's, that's fancy. You know, that's, that's eloquent, right? And it was also his great uncle that would send him uh, to the University of Wittenberg, where he would meet one Martin Luther.
2: Yeah, you know, something that was less talked about, by the way, uh, that was I saw in a couple different places was that, that part of Germany where he was born, Melanchthon, was really big on the occult. So stars, demonology, astrology, those are kind of big things. Um, and in the area that he was born and like where he lived, and it was not irregular to burn witches. And so Melanchthon in an early life was being exposed to this side of spirituality. And I became a big believer in some of these things, it seems as the Reformation wore on, uh, those things would go away. But it was just a part of his background, too, that he was seeing that kind of stuff happening around him. In 1508, his life took this unexpected, tragic twist. Uh, his dad and his grandfather both died within 11 days of each other. His father had been an invalid uh, for at this point four years. So it might not have been a huge surprise. It might have, you know, but it still is going to shake you. And it might explain why his great uncle had so much influence on him when he's kind of the only man really left in this young man's life. Now, his path did not originally look like he was headed for the Great Reformation. He studied under several humanists, but he learned how to teach the languages. And he he had learned how to do this Greek and Latin stuff so well that by the age of 21, he had written six different books, including a book on how to teach uh, Greek languages, which it would be really easy to brush over that. But Joel, I don't know about you, but I don't think at 21, uh, I could write a book on how to write, how to mm-hmm. how to teach other people l- some of the tough languages of the time. Uh, and it was so good that Erasmus, who is considered during that era to be one of the greatest scholars of Greek, he praised it and said, this is a great book to use for teaching the Greek languages. So imagine 21, you're doing this really difficult subject. And the, 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 the biggest scholar in that field pretty much says, hey, you did a great job. This is a solid work. I mean, that's high praise right but in 1518 his great uncle gets asked to be the professor at wittenberg of latin and greek and i think maybe he was kind of moving in that hebrew direction he wasn't really interested in it and he said i'm I'm not i'm gonna pass on this but i really think my great nephew here philip is the guy that you're gonna want What, what a great great uncle
3: you know like i feel like Imagine if everyone had a great uncle like this guy, hooking him up, paying his way through education, getting him jobs left and right. So at 21, he becomes this professor of Greek at at the university. And he goes in with, with a plan. Four days after starting, uh, he's giving speeches and addresses in the university about how to improve, how to change, how about how to rejuvenate theology and society there at the school, and uh, he meets Martin Luther, and Martin Luther is also a professor there at that time, and the two would hit it off right away, and and the two of them saw many of the same problems that uh, were plaguing the society during that time. For example, uh, you know, Luther comes on the scene, hits, hits his 95 theses into the church wall and then, you know, sparks all of this controversy and he's having the debates with the Catholic Church. Specifically, there's a man named Johann Eck uh, who uh, Martin Luther has this famous debate with. And, and Johann uh, essentially already had the exact same debate with Melanchthon before this even took place. They were on the same wavelength enough to where Melanchthon Um, again, was already debating the church on the same things that Martin Luther would get the spotlight for. But uh, again, they're thinking the same things there. Another example is, I mean, they both came to the same conclusion about justification by faith alone. Uh, Melanchthon actually rejected the idea of transubstantiation. Uh, That communion was actually Jesus's real blood and body. Uh, he, He came to that conclusion before Luther even did. So a little bit, in some ways, a little bit ahead of Luther.
2: Melanchthon was very busy at this time of his life. He'd begin his days at two a.m. as wake up two a.m. and he'd be teaching his lectures on Greek by six a.m. Which we've talked about this, Joel. How do you do that without an alarm clock? I um I I think it'd be very difficult. Apparently, I've I've asked somebody this and they said that you have to like listen to the animals that are moving and like the guard and watchmen. Mm. No, no, I've totally
3: seen. I've seen like they would like hire. Uh, like people to, to use sticks to poke your windows, oh like goodness. tap on your windows. How'd you like that as a job? Like your job as a, <laughs> as a, you know, in the 1500s is just to stay up all night and go around Picking and windows. tap on people's windows when they tell yeah, you yeah. to
2: tap on people's windows. I guess it could be worse, but yeah, it, it's not easy. So you're getting up at 2 a.m. to teach your classes at 6. Often the classes are like 600 students. 600 students, by the way, without like a microphone, no air conditioner, nothing like that. Despite that, he found time to court Catherine Crap, and the two of them got married in 1520, would have four kids together. Luther encouraged Melanchthon to do a lecture on Paul's letter to Romans, which this is famously what the kind of the catalyst for Luther changing his theology was, was going through Paul's letter to the Romans. Melanchthon did so and wrote a book in 1521, which became his cornerstone, one of his big impactful works. The English title is called Theological Commonplaces. Although it would be revised three times before he, he died, this became the first Reformation-style systematic theology, and it went from Scripture, not just church tradition, and Melanchthon argued new ideas and better ideas on sin, will, works, grace, things like that. The book may not be one you're reading today, but it was very impactful at the time. Luther said it was so good he thought it should be canon. Uh, University of Cambridge made it required reading Queen Elizabeth I basically tried to memorize it so that when she had to speak with the bishops, she could speak intelligently on subjects of theology.
3: Yeah, and despite all that, Millington was a humble guy. He he hated <laughs> he hated promoting his work, even though they were wildly successful. There's a commentary he wrote on on 1 Corinthians and another one on John that he was basically forced to publish because uh, he was too shy. He didn't, he, didn't, he, he didn't think it was good enough. You know, he, I, I don't know. I don't think he had like self-esteem issues, but uh, he definitely wasn't about raking in the the success. He was also really pivotal in a lot of different decisions, a lot of different organizing. He was good at organizing things. And so uh, what you know, this new Protestant movement that's happening, uh, he was instrumental in organizing and forming a lot of the new Protestant churches that were popping up and giving input and structure to how services were conducted. It, it's new, like it's all it's all new. If you're not doing it high church style of the Catholic Church, what is what does a church service look like? Like nobody <laughs> you ha, we ha, they had to come up with what that structure looked like. And another aspect to what the Protestant Reformation was that I found really fascinating was the educational system, right? Cuz all of the schools were Catholic schools. And so now that reformers aren't going to Catholic schools, there's nowhere for their children to be educated. And so uh, he came up with essentially just a a school system, school districts, school zones, a a method, a formula, a structure to what schools could be like and, and would be like he wrote the curriculum for all of this stuff. And Melanchthon's plan for educating children became law in the first public schools in Saxony. And 56 cities asked for his help in founding schools to follow his education plan. And, Troy, I know as much as you do, the, the children are the future, right? You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about, but imagine the Great Reformation without it being in the educational system for children. Like, it, that single-handedly... Help secure what the Reformation was like. I don't know if it takes root. If yeah, it wasn't it wasn't integrated into schools for young young people that are coming up into it would have died out with that initial generation. And so I don't know. I just never thought about that before. That like part of the Reformation is we got to teach our kids this stuff, or it's it's going to die out. Like because there were you know pre-Reformation movements that died out. I, I don't know. I don't. Know. I found that fascinating.
2: No, you know what, Joel actually. Uh, put a pin in this. I think there's a deep dive in this discussion because uh, there's actually a well-known strategy that the Catholic, school, the Catholic uh, Church used to try to pull the German church back in was also by aiming after their children in a special way. So let's put a pin mm. in this. I've got some ideas because um, you're not wrong. This educating the children. Is so important, not just in this moment in history. There are lots of people who are like the children have to be educated first. But I do think when we study church history, that that aspect of education does get forgotten. So let's put a pin in that and come back to it for a a revived thoughts, Um, uh, revived conversation. Yeah, there we go. And not just the schools for students, young students. Melanchthon was also involved in reforming several different universities and also in founding a few universities. So again, this guy is having a big role. And the world of education and academics
0: what's so special about hero bread's soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas hero bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs five to eleven grams of protein and high fiber in every delicious serving made with natural ingredients hero bread supports gut health promotes weight management and helps maintain blood sugar Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net-carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.
2: It would be difficult to cover just everything Melanchthon did for the Reformation in one episode. You know, this is not the first time we've had to say this guy was too big for one episode. Uh, But one last thing that we have to mention is the Augsburg Confession. This is the statement of shared beliefs that became the primary statement of the Lutheran churches, and it also became a very important document for Protestant churches, a shared idea, a confession of what we believe and how are we, you know, different, what are we going to stand on that's different outside of what the Catholic Church is saying. This was a summary of Luther and Melanchthon's ideas, although Melanchthon gets kind of more credit because he wrote it. And even Luther was like, I don't know if I agree with everything in that. So it's it's definitely both of their ideas, but it also leans a little bit more on him. Melanchthon did have some issues. Uh, some people said he was too soft, too conciliatory towards Catholics, for example. Uh, yet despite all these things, Luther and Melanchthon were a team. Luther would win the hearts of the people, the peasants, everybody loved Luther. But Luther did not always win the hearts of other academic elite kind of people. Melanchthon, on the other hand, he was really good at reaching those academic universities and those people who were scholars and bringing them over to their side. And without Melanchthon, uh, Luther's ideas would have gotten lost. It's actually interesting. Joel said, uh, you know, he kind of, there were other proto-reformers. That's very much it. Without Melanchthon writing down the books uh, Luther would have probably might have been just another John Huss that he did well but he wasn't able to win but because Melanchthon was there to write the books down to get it in the hands of scholars to change universities to change the education system uh, Luther's ideas lasted longer than just Martin Luther
3: yeah, so in the, in the later years of their lives, Luther and Melanchthon were not quite as close as they were in their earlier years. But when Luther died, Melanchthon said, quote, dead is the horseman and chariot of Israel who ruled the church in this last age of the world, end quote. He then went to deliver this eulogy at Luther's funeral.
1: God has always preserved a proportion of His servants upon the earth. And now, through Martin Luther, a more splendid period of light and truth has appeared. Solon, Themistocles, Scipio, Augustus, and others, who either established or ruled over mighty empires, were indeed truly great men, but far, far inferior to our illustrious leaders. Isaiah, John the Baptist, Paul, Augustine, and Luther... And it grows us to study this distinction. What are these great and important things which Luther has discovered for us, and which render his life so remarkable? For many are clamoring against him as a disturber of the church and a promoter of inexplicable controversies. Luther explained the true and important doctrine of repentance, which was hidden in the profoundest darkness. He showed us what it was and where refuge and consolation could be found. He taught the statements of Paul respecting justification by faith and showed the distinction between the law and the gospel, civil and spiritual justification. He pointed out the true principle of prayer and exterminated that heathenish absurdity from the church that God was not to be invoked if the mind entertained the least doubt upon an academic question. He encouraged men to pray in the exercise of faith and a good conscience to the only mediator and Son of God who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He told us not to pray to images or to see saints according to the shocking practice of the ignorant multitude. He also pointed out other services acceptable to God, and he was a role model himself in all the duties of life. He separated the immaturities of human rites and ceremonies, which often prevent, instead of promoting genuine worship, from those services which are essential to obedience. In order that heavenly light might be transmitted to the future, he translated the prophetic and apostolic writings into the German language with so much accuracy that his version of itself places scripture in a more understandable light than most commentaries can. But he also published many expositions upon the sacred writings, which, in the judgment of Erasmus, by far excelled all others. Just as it is recorded about those who rebuilt Jerusalem, with one hand they laid the stones and with the other they held the sword. In the same way, while Luther composed notes on Scripture full of heavenly instruction, he also waged incessant war with the adversaries of evangelical truth. When it is recollected that this truth, especially the doctrine of faith and the remission of sins, is not discoverable by the merely human eye, it must be acknowledged he was taught by God. And many of us have witnessed his anxious concern to impress the great principle of acceptance by faith. Multitudes of the saints will therefore praise God to all eternity for the benefits which have accrued to the church by the labors of Luther." Some, by no means evil-minded persons, however, express a suspicion that Luther manifested too much harshness in his language. I will not affirm the opposite, that he was too kind, but only quote the language of Erasmus. God has sent in this latter age a violent doctor on account of the magnitude of the existing diseases. Fulfilling by such a dispensation the divine message to Jeremiah, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and pull down, and to destroy and throw down, and to build and to plant. Nor does God govern His church according to the counsels of men, nor choose to employ instruments like theirs to promote His purposes. But it is common for their inferior minds to dislike those of a more passionate character. When Aristides observed the mighty affairs which Themistocles, by the impulse of a superior genius, undertook and happily accomplished, although he congratulated the state on the advantage it possessed in such a man, he studied every means to divert his zealous mind from its pursuits. I do not deny that passionate spirits are sometimes betrayed into undue rashness, for no one is totally exempt from the weaknesses incident to human nature." But they often merit the praise assigned by the ancient proverb to Hercules, Simon, and other illustrious characters, rough indeed, but distinguished by the best principles. So in the Christian church, the Apostle Paul mentions such as war a good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience, and who are both pleasing to God and respected among pious men. Such a one was Luther, who, while he constantly defended the pure doctrines of Christianity, maintained a conscientious integrity of character. No vain lust was ever detected in him, no seditious counsels, but, on the contrary, he often urged the measures of pacifism. And never, never did he blend political articles for the growth of power with ecclesiastical affairs. Such wisdom and such virtue, I am persuaded, do not result from mere human skill or diligence, but the mind must be divinely influenced, especially when it is of the more rough, elevated, and passionate cast, like that of Luther. What will I say of his other virtues? Often have I myself gone to him unaware and found him sobbing in tears and prayers for the Church of Christ. He devoted a certain portion of almost every day to the solemn reading of some of the Psalms of David, with which he mingled his own prayers amid sighs and tears. And he has frequently declared how frustrated he felt against those who were hurried over devotional exercises through laziness or the pretense of other occupations. When a variety of great and important deliberations respecting public dangers have been pending, we have witnessed His prodigious vigor of mind, His fearless and unshaken courage. Faith was His anchor, and by the help of God He was resolved never to be driven from it. Such was His penetration that He perceived at once what was to be done in the most perplexing situations. Nor was he, as some say, negligent of the public good or disinterested in the wishes of others, but he was well acquainted with the interests of the state. He was preeminently wise in discovering the capacity and attitudes of all around him, and although he possessed such extraordinary acuteness of intellect, he read both ancient and modern ecclesiastical writings with all eagerness, He would read histories of every kind, applying the examples they showed to existing circumstances with remarkable speed. The undecaying monuments of his eloquence remain, and in my opinion, he equaled any of those who have been most celebrated for their resplendent powers of speech through history. The removal of such a character from among us of one who was endowed with all the greatest intellectual capacity, well-instructed and long-experienced in the knowledge of Christian truth, adorned with numerous excellencies and with virtues of the most heroic caste, chosen by divine providence to reform the church of God, and cherishing for all of us a truly paternal affection. The removal, I say, of such a man demands and justifies our tears. We resemble orphans, bereft of an excellent and faithful father. But while it is necessary to submit to the will of heaven, let us not permit the memory of his virtues and his good offices to perish. He was an important tool in the hands of God of of public good. Let us diligently study the truth he taught, imitating in our humble situations his fear of God, his faith, the intensity of his devotions, the integrity of his pastoral character, his purity, his careful avoidance of untrustworthy counsel, his passionate thirst for knowledge. And as we frequently meditate upon the pious examples of those illustrious guides of the church, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, and Paul, whose histories are transmitted to us, let us also frequently reflect upon the doctrine and course of life which distinguished our departed friend.
2: Melanchthon really, uh, speaking of Luther, he he kind of brushes over maybe some of the negatives. He's like, oh, you know, Luther, he never really let politics sway him. That's not completely true. But it, it is mostly true that there were many times Luther could have bent his knee politically and his life would have been easier. But Luther chose not to. And I do love that Melanchthon, in the middle of the eulogy, too, Martin Luther is like, so, you know, some people accuse Luther of having rough language. You know, it's true. It's funny that he's mentioning these things, these same things that 500 years later, we still talk about with Martin Luther, like he's a little too political, or he was a little too uh, rough on his language. And yet Melanchthon, who knew Luther well, who would end up carrying the torch after Luther, still has nothing but extremely high praise for Luther. And I think We have to look at the time that, you know, sometimes when we look at him, we look at him through a modern lens and complain about some of the things he did. But when you look at it and the effect he had at that time, Luther had a huge effect. And Melanchthon, who carried on what Luther did and would carry it on for another decade as one of the leaders of the Reformation, he's telling you, Luther was an amazing man. We were all lucky to have known him. And Melanchthon himself was an amazing man. And the people around him would probably be saying the same thing at his funeral. These are wonderful, awesome people that God put right in the right spot at the right time to change the church and to move the world for the better.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Clay Cravey, who, uh, again, Troy, you got to be on this show, right?
2: Yeah, I got to be on his podcast, Reasonable Theology. We told you at the beginning, go give it a subscribe and listen to it. It is great. It's been around for years, and he enjoys meshing church history and theology and things like that together, doing a really wonderful job. He has a beautiful website, actually, too. He has one of the nicest websites in the game. Um, go check out his stuff and go if you're not sure where to start go listen to the recent episode i was on his show talking about why church history is important getting asked some good questions and, and some thoughts that i had not been asked before which was pretty fun so go check out what he's doing there over at reasonable theology and i think you will find that it is definitely worth your time this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts